Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Jen. Hello. <laughs> here we are. Um, well, there's a war going on here, so I pressed the wrong buttons. Um, hello to Dr. Jen Malia. It's wonderful to have you on the show. So thank you so much for having me. It's a wonderful pleasure. And I will just mention before I forget that I am Mel Rosenberg, and I am the host of the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. And I've been waiting a long time to meet you, Jen. May I call you Jen? Yes, yes, please do. Okay. And uh, you are celebrating two books that are coming out within a month of each other. Wonderful books, uh, books full of optimism, the Infinity Rainbow Club. What is the Infinity Rainbow Club? Take your books, show them, brag about them, talk to us about them. Don't be shy. (laughs) So here's, this is actually the bookmark for the Infinity Rainbow Club. So there are actually three books that are, the first three books will be out. um, The first book already came out. It's Nick and the Brick Builder Challenge. It came out on September 26th. And the second book, Violet and the Jurassic Land Exhibit, is coming out tomorrow. So (laughs) very soon. And um, the the third book, Connor and the Taekwondo Tournament, will be out March 12th. So they're all coming out pretty quickly. (laughs) Wonderful. And these are by Beaming Books. Mm -hmm. You want to uh, shout out to your agent, your editor, whoever you like? Yeah, so my agent is Naomi Davis at Bookends Literary Agency. And I also have a speaking agency now. Um, it's Authors Out Loud, and it's a, the Kidlet division of Authors Unbound. And my, um, my, my editor for the, the first three books, and um, I actually have a second editor too now that is working with me on the third book, but um, Andrea Hall. And um, actually my longtime editor, because she worked with me on Too Sticky as well, my first, um, my debut picture book. And um, yeah, so that's, that's basically, um, that's basically it for now. So wonderful. And, and, and the, um, the idea of each of these five books in the series is that they celebrate a main character with a different kind of neurodiversity. So Take us through that, please. Yeah, so I, the concept for the series was to have um, to feature neurodivergent kids and in an, and an after school club. So it's a school based series. And the uh, a lot of people aren't aware that the infinity rainbow symbol is for neurodiversity. So the title of the book is actually referring directly to neurodiversity. So the infinity rainbow um symbol, which you can see it here on the bookmark here, but like an infinity rainbow symbol is for neurodiversity. A lot of times um, people just think of autism when they think about neurodiversity, but it includes a lot more than that. Um, It is ADHD, OCD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, and a lot of other brain differences. So when I talk to, especially when I'm talking to kids about neurodiversity, I like to talk about it as brain differences, you know, that, um, you know, brains that work a little bit differently. 
And I think that that, um, that sort of describes to the uh, main character in my series, his name's Nick. Um, in the first book, the main character is Nick. And he came up with the idea for the Infinity Rainbow Club and talked to his special education teacher who um, helped him set up this, this club after school where they meet in the sensory gym. And it's a place where STEMs are and communication styles that are different are accepted and celebrated. So the concept behind it is that it's a place where kids can feel comfortable with their differences and not feel, you know, if they're flapping their hands, which some of my characters in the books do, or spinning in circles or jumping up and down, or, you know, one of my characters is a non-speaking autistic girl. She's using her tablet to communicate. And it's all just done in a way where there isn't really explanations for it. It's like, you just go with it. And um, the books aren't so much about what is it to be, you know, what does it mean to be autistic as it is just autistic people, autistic kids going about their everyday life, having fun, um, participating in activities and going on adventures. So uh, one is about the building and one is the discovery of dinosaurs. A few words, please. Dinosaur bones, shall I say. Fossils. Yeah, so the Nick and the Brick Bearer Challenge, you can see here on the illustration, the illustrator, by the way, is Peter Francis, and he did a fantastic job of illustrating, um, you know, the, the cover, but also, you know, within the book, there's tons of illustrations that just show the kids. Give you an example of one of them here. Ah, there we go. So this is one of the brick building challenges that they do. They make this Ferris wheel, and that's... um sort of a, it, it turns into a district-wide tournament. It starts out where they're just in the sensory gym at their own elementary school. And then, you know, certain kids advance on to the next round. But I like to think of it as, um, if you're familiar with the show Lego Masters, it's like Lego Masters for kids because we got kids doing competitions where they're given a certain amount of time and they have to take all their, their plastic bricks and make something out of it. So it's, um I think, really a great book for, I mean, kids who love Legos. There's a lot of kids who love Legos. And I actually came up with the idea for the book because my kids have tens of thousands of Legos in our playroom. We have like Lego cities, just like the kids in the book do. And um, so it was very much based on just like me observing my kids playing with Legos. Um, and that's like one of their favorite things to do. So we have the same kind of, um, floor that the uh in the infinity rainbow club book the character nick has a rainbow colored foam floor in his playroom that's what we have in our house and they you know they build lego cities just like my kids do so a lot of it was actually based on some real life um events and incidents you know that have happened in my family and uh, you uh are on record i i read uh, that you uh, found out that you were autistic at a when you were 12 or 13 um actually it was much later than that when i was 39 i was diagnosed so as an adult um wow i was yeah it is, it that, is that, that's, that's late diagnosis <laughs> that is and it's it's surprisingly especially common or i wouldn't say common but more common with um women to have a very late diagnosis because um, statistically for every four boys diagnosed, only one girl is diagnosed. So there's, there is 
you know, they, they think that there is perhaps a difference in those statistics that is specifically the way in which um, girls and women often mask a lot of their autistic traits and are overlooked for a diagnosis. So that ratio of four to one is probably not particularly accurate. And a lot of women like me that are now, I'm in my 40s, I know some women in their 50s, you know, that are discovering now, you know, that they're autistic because there's so much more, I think, openness to talk about, you know, what it means to be autistic. And I sort of started this journey by writing a piece for Woman's Day. And the uh, piece I wrote was called, I was diagnosed with autism in my late 30s. And that piece really took off and a bunch of women's magazines picked it up. And before you know it, I was writing for like the New York Times, the Washington Post about my journey, about the journey to get my kids diagnosed as well. I have three autistic kids. Um, so there was a piece in the New York Times that I wrote called my daughter and I were diagnosed with autism on the same day. And that's true. We went, I actually found you know, did research to try to figure out what's going on her and found that um, not only was she autistic, but I was too. And so I sought a diagnosis for us and the clinical psychologist who diagnosed us, it, it happened on the same day after going through all the testing. And, and so that was, yeah, that's pretty much in a nutshell, um, my diagnosis journey and, you know, the, the journey to get my kids diagnosed too. That, that's quite incredible. So, so um, growing up, did you did you feel that you were different in some way? I mean, I, later on in our conversation, I want to make the argument that all kids are different in one way or another. Um, so as, as a kid growing up, where did you grow up? Uh, did you feel different? Did you have trouble in any particular? Because, Jen, people are going to say, okay, um, you're a PhD, mm -hmm. um, I think, in English? Yes, yes, in English. And, um, you know, mo most... People who are not diagnosed as autistic do not reach that level. You're a professor. You've, you know, you have three wonderful books out, and you, you know, that's like one in a thousand. Not to talk about all your articles and all the work that you're doing. Yeah. So, so what's, run, what's, run us through this. So what's interesting too is it's a developmental disorder, autism, and so the way that I was as a kid is very different than the way that I am now. So, so if I describe for you some of the things that were you know, for me, public speaking would have been something I never would have wanted to do. Even in graduate school, I couldn't handle public speaking. It was extremely terrifying for me. So I was what, what a lot of people refer to as selectively mute as a child. So it's not that I didn't talk. I was verbal, but I was only comfortable talking to, you know, close family and maybe a couple of friends, but I was never comfortable in classrooms. I was sort of that kid that would just sit there not saying a word unless somebody pretty much put me on the spot and then turning red in the face and just not even being able to, to face it. So for me as a kid, it wasn't even just that. It was the social anxiety could be something that any kid might have. But beyond that, it was just having like restricted routines that I didn't like being changed. Um, other things would be like just... Um, having sensitivities, like sensory sensitivities to things like sounds. Um, I never could walk on like tile floors without wearing slippers or something, just having that direct contact with a hard surface. I still wear slippers in my own house. <laughs> I still don't walk on a hardwood floor or a tile floor without putting something between my feet and the floor, because that's still very sensitive for me. And okay. 
things like that. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> no, I, I I have to get in here because of your book, uh, Too Sticky, which which uh, which I love. You have it around to show people. Yes, it's it, too sticky. Okay, it, it it's not a book that that uh, is too sticky. It's just it's called too too sticky. I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if some of the pages were sticky? Um, and and what I wanted to ask you, this is a wonderful uh, picture book. It's your debut picture book. Um, but like I'm a, I'm going to have an oive moment because don't all people hate things that are sticky? Yeah, what's interesting is I I've gotten so much feedback because this book's now been since out since 2020. So I've had all kinds of parents, librarians, teachers. You know, I don't get the feedback directly from kids unless I actually, you know, do a presentation with them. But um, some kids love sticky and some kids hate sticky. And oftentimes it doesn't matter whether or not they are, you know, you don't have to be autistic to have sensory sensitivities. In fact, like ADHD and other kind of neurodivergent kids often have them too. But, and then there's well, well, kids... one thing I, I hate when my fingers are sticky. Yeah. That, yeah. There's that doesn't, doesn't mean that. I, like, no, <laughs> I'm not I, at the age of 71. You're not going to send me out to get tested, right? No, I mean, you could have sensory sensitivities that have something to do with, you know, it could just be that you don't like sticky things and that's it. And oftentimes, I, what it is, it's like, I, I, an, are there adults who don't mind having sticky fingers? Absolutely. I think, I mean, I definitely come across people that, that could care less. I have trouble cooking food because I hate sticky hands so much. Like, I'm rinsing my hands off non-stop trying to cook and it's just uh for me from my like this book actually is a more like a composite character so my character holly has trouble with sticky things it's more me than it is i have a daughter named holly and she was the inspiration for the book however it's more me she likes sticky more than i do but there's other things about my character holly that are more like my you know my daughter holly so it's like a composite character where i took a little bit of my own sensitivity is a little bit of hers and sort of mix them in together into a fictional character. People are, people are so funny, Jen, because I was reading too sticky and I'm saying to myself, well, then this, this isn't just, you know, people that have sensory, uh, it, it's everybody because I, I, I felt the same way. I hate sticky. I wash my hands a million times. And so what you're telling me, and this is something that's kind of important is that, um, we all have our, our sticks, and um, just because you have a shtick, it doesn't mean that everybody else does. Mm -hmm. And and wow, so so that's really a kind of a revelation. So <clears throat> the next question I wanted to ask you: um, Are any of your diverse books about being left-handed? No, no, it never comes into any. Uh, no. So maybe I'll write a book about being left-handed. <laughs> Yeah, I have a son that I have a son that's left-handed, and uh, it's kind of interesting how, like, things are so so different. You know, just uh, he plays hockey, and like he's left-handed. You know, when he plays goal, you have to have different equipment, or when he doesn't play goal, you know, it, being left-handed, everything's different, right? <laughs> talk, talk to me about it. Yeah, the, the hockey sticks are different. The mm -hmm. the catchers. This when I was a kid in Canada. Um, one of the one of the uh, I felt persecuted for many reasons. That one of them was being a left-handed kid, and you know there, there were just no good baseball mitts for left-handed people, no good hockey sticks. Um, and um, so we we need to work on a book about left-handed people. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So 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 when you 
So you went for a diagnosis when you were 39, and you said, I'm like this, I'm like that, I'm like that. And 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 the a clinical a clinician said, Oh, you have some kind of autism. It's um it's a diagnostic process. It's a bit different for adults than it is for kids because they'll interview. Um, so my husband went through, you know, it's almost like they have to get personal um or like I, I went through a sort of personality test of my own and, you know, different multiple choice tests and an interview with the clinical psychologist, then they'll often interview, you know, perhaps parents or a spouse or someone else who had known that person, you know, when they were growing up too, because a lot of the times there's some things that, you know, over time you can get better at masking things. Not that that's a good way. I, I mean, now I'm trying to be more open about being autistic and I don't try to mask. I'm more open and I, I don't, um, I used to try to hide a lot of the things that I was different, you know, the ways in which I was different. And now I publicly speak about them to try to help other people to feel that they don't have to be, um, they don't have to hide any kind of stims that they do. Stims would be things like flicking fingers, flapping hands, um, but they could be a lot of other things too, but rocking back and forth. Like we think of certain ones that are stereotypical, but there's a lot of ways in which um, neurodivergent people like to stim. And I'm very aware of the fact that people are looking at me and I have been my whole life. I've had um, these sort of things that I do when people aren't looking at me when I'm in a private area, but I don't do them in front of other people. But that's part of me masking, trying to fit in and look the same way that other people do so I don't stand out. And a lot of that's like ingrained in me. I can't even if I wanted to just always do everything, you know, out in public that maybe I feel like doing when I'm alone, if that makes sense, like in terms of like, just relaxing or how I sit in a chair, or, you know, it's just like every little thing that you try to think about what other people might think. I, I have that so ingrained in me because I always knew that people noticed that I look different. And so then I developed these ways of like changing the way I acted in front of other people. So can, can, can you, can, can you give an example? Because I'm going to, I'm going to run out after this interview and get myself diagnosed. <laughs> um, so it, I mean, I guess the best way to put it too is that with autism, like if I gave you an example of even five things, that's not going to equal autism because it's going to be probably like a hundred things that a whole bunch of little things all add up to the one thing. So if that makes sense, it's like you might have trouble with loud noises. You might have trouble with, like I mentioned earlier, stepping on hardwood floors, but then you might also wash your laundry the exact same way every single time, like I do, or get irritated if someone washes it differently or or takes something of yours and moves it to a different place because you're really restricted as to how you like to organize them. So it's like I could name like 200 different things that I do a certain way. And if I don't yeah, have no, yeah, yeah. Well, can you can you can you give an example of one thing that you do like when you're when nobody's watching? Well I do I, in fact during this interview I'm flicking my fingers because for me that's relaxing to do something like that. It's like a stimming thing. Um, so I'll do things like that for sure. And I will sometimes escape from a social situation, like go to the restroom, go in a restroom stall. And I'll just be like, I mean, making, I don't know, I wouldn't say like making faces and things like that, but just kind of like 
you know, allowing myself to just not care at all what I'm looking like in that moment. So it might be that I just need to like, you know, like squeeze my fists or something. I'm not angry, but it's just like, I'm, I just need to like shake for a minute and just like relax my muscles or whatever, but it's just like stuff. I don't want other people to see. It's like, I'm releasing some tension that's built up from just trying to, um, you know, not appear different, you know, in front of other people. But like I said, I try not to let myself do that, but sometimes I need to escape from a situation because I start to get really overwhelmed and it might not even be that I need to stem, but just that I need to escape. And I notice it with my kids because I have to pull them out of situations too. When I see them start to like, it's almost like they're, they're getting they're They can't emotionally regulate anymore. I can like hear the tone of their voice change. And it's like, we need to get out of here. Like it's too crowded, too noisy or something happened. And it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? Like a whole bunch of little things happen. And I can tell that if we don't get out of here right now, there's going to be a meltdown. So it's like one of those things you start to sense um, how, you know, having a different brain, like different things that build up and cause you to get um, what we often think of as like a sensory overload where you, you start to have a meltdown. So, but Jen, looking at you, you've had a, a marvelous career. Is this because you had to cope? Run, run us through your career. You know, only one in a thousand authors gets a publishing deal and you have a multiple publishing deal. Um, you are, I would say, really gifted. Run us, run us through how this, how this works for you. So I would say one of the sort of, one of the things that being autistic helps me with is actually writing because I think I'm the writer that I am because I'm autistic. And, and that's partly because it, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I don't want to say that everyone who's autistic is gifted, but there are a lot of people who have different talents that come from being autistic or neurodivergent. Um, and some of those things, like with my kids, it's more, they're more sort of like engineering trained. Um, you know, they have that kind of mind. My husband's trained in engineering and they have that sort of, um, but one of my kids, he also writes and he's very good at writing. He can write 10,000 words and he's like only eight years old, you know, <laughs> a 10,000 word story. And so to me, that's like, he's got a lot of potential with writing and he sees me doing it and imitates, you know, likes to do do writing as well. So for me though, um, I have these like vivid video memories of experiences that have happened to me. So like I can go back to when my childhood in my mind and sort of replay things that happened to me when I was a child and remember the, the smells and the sounds and, and replay the scene, like who was there, what were they doing? You know, it's almost like a movie in my head of what happened. And so if I want to draw from those memories, and I have, you know, when I've written some books um, or articles, I've also written a lot of articles for adults, I have, you know, sort of um, pulled from these vivid video memories to write. And it's almost like I'm writing the script of this sort of story that's playing out for me. And I mean, I'm a fiction, my books are fiction, but they draw so much on real life that in a lot of ways I'm sort of replaying these vivid memories of even recent things that have happened with my kids and then putting them into a scene and maybe changing them because, I mean, I want it to work for the story. I don't just write, I mean, I'm not writing memoirs of 
you know, my family, but a lot of the things that happen with my kids and other um, experiences that I have, they find their way into books. And I would say a very specific way. I mean, a lot of authors will tell you they draw in real life, but I mean, I'm really drawing on yeah. <laughs> like all the little details are like very, very close to things that have happened to me. What, what, when, when did this start? Like, when did you discover that you had this amazing writing gift? Well, I've always been, um, I would say as a kid, like when I think about my communication as a kid, I mentioned earlier that I was selectively mute. Reading and writing was always something that I felt comfortable with. Like I just like to read books and write. And I didn't necessarily write, you know, I'm not talking about like a lot of journal entries and things like that, but I always enjoyed writing because for me, that was the best way for me to communicate. I felt more comfortable writing something down or reading something than I did speaking. So I didn't like talking at all because for me, it was, it was almost like, um, I also have some auditory, um, processing issues where it's, for me, it took a long time before I could even listen to something like a podcast because I could keep getting lost or, you know, I wondered why, why people or how people could listen to books. I couldn't follow the plot when I was listening, but I've, I've trained myself over many years. Now I can do that fine. But, you know, even in college, trying to listen to, I couldn't write notes and listen to the professors. I <laughs> just do one or the other because it's really hard. Or if I'm sitting in a meeting, even as an adult now, like at work, um, I can't multitask easily like that. It's either I'm listening to the meeting going on or or I'm writing things down, but not yeah, one yeah. or the other, you know. <laughs> can, can, you, can you do your video replay afterwards? Um, yeah, I mean, I... I What's interesting too is I have a really good memory for a lot of that stuff. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a big deal if I didn't have any notes from because I could remember so much of what happened um, that I didn't need them. So <laughs> so that worked out okay. Amazing. So so your your PhD is in a particular subject. Yeah, it's um. So my specialty is nineteenth century British literature um, and turn of the twentieth century. It's not something that I'm I'm still teaching. Some courses, like I teach some upper level um, literature courses and one's called Romantic Writers. It's like the Romantic era, like Jane Austen, Mary Shelley. So I teach that, but I also teach writing for children and um, like uh, composition courses and other sort of survey courses in literature. So I, I have a PhD in literature but the specific specialty is um, 19th century British lit. And you know, everything, you're such a wonderful guest on the program. And so absolutely uh, forthcoming, uninhibited, uh, lovely, uh, laughing, engaging, um, and you teach. And this kind of runs against, you know, what, what you like you're doing what you resisted doing when you were a kid. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing how one day I just was able to do public speaking because I can recall, I can bring up those video memories of me in graduate school trying to do something as simple as a conference where you're reading your paper at some of these conferences. I couldn't even stand up and read the words on the paper without completely breaking down with it. And it's just amazing that um, it's almost like getting not getting forced into a classroom, but I got a PhD in English because I liked reading. And then it was like, okay, what are you going to do with that? And <laughs> so then you end up in a classroom as a graduate student, because that's just part of it. They train you, you know, kind of get you. And I was okay with, um, you know, the students that I had in the classroom. I, 
I just gradually got used to it. Like I, I was able to develop um, as a teacher and now I've been teaching for more than 25 years now. So I've been. And, 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 and you don't mind being on this show where neither of us knows what the next question is going to be. I don't, I don't mind. And like I said, as even in my, I would say every decade of my life, there was something a little different that changed. Like, so public speaking, it wasn't really, there are some times that I still get, you know, I think I just now have the same kind of anxiety that any speaker might have, but nothing like it was before. So public, public speaking got like, you know, a hundred times easier <laughs> than it used to be. But then there's other was, things that are... Yeah. Is it a tra transition or just some, you know, epiphany that suddenly? Yeah, you were it, was just mm -hmm. it was a transition. It was a transition because, like, at first it was okay to talk to my classes, but then I'd still have a lot of trouble if I had to present in front of people I didn't know. So it was kind of like it. It took a long time to develop the skill of being able to speak publicly, and I know that's a skill that you know, autistic or not, public speaking can be extremely anxiety producing for anybody. So it was a skill, but it was just an extreme, extremely terrifying thing for me when I was younger. Cause even just talking to people, like saying hello to someone was, was terrifying um, as a kid. Like it was one of those things where, you know, I remember very vividly just being, you know, walking around with my parents and not even wanting to say a word to whoever it is that we might encounter. It's like, Oh, this is my daughter. And I just be like standing there, like not saying anything. <laughs> so. Very so different. I, I, I lied to you because I do know what my next question is. <laughs> no, usually, usually I don't. Um, your wonderful books, who are they written for? So I wanted to write books specifically for neurodivergent kids and autist autistic kids, but also um, the series, I didn't mention this, has a different point of view for each book. So Nick and the Brick Builder Challenge is from the point of view of an autistic boy, but Violet and the Jurassic Land Exhibit is from the point of view of a girl with OCD. And Connor in the Taekwondo Tournament has an, a boy with ADHD as the main character. So I wanted to get a whole range of different neurodivergent kids. And the series has so many neurodivergent kid characters in it. I mean, it's just, I think a lot of times we see books, they have one autistic character, or one, you know, character with ADHD, but to have like a whole cast of characters that are really the, the, you know, the primary and secondary characters. And even like, in the first book, Nick's mom's autistic as well, you know, very much modeling off from my own family. But it's it's um it was just something that I didn't want it to be just for our neurodivergent kids, but especially for them, because I think it's really hard to find books, especially for younger kids, where you can see I wanted neurodivergent kids to see themselves in books in a big way, you know, like with an entire cast of characters, like I said, so that I could reach the sort of one in five. There's at least one in five kids now that are diagnosed as being neurodivergent. So I wanted to make sure that I could reach all of them, but also their neurotypical peers so that they could understand better what it's like to have a different brain. And if you think about a classroom of 25 kids, if one in five are neurodivergent, there's five kids in that classroom that feel different. And to, to have all the kids in that classroom understand better what that's like makes it just, it's the chances that a kid will go through life and not know anybody neurodivergent is pretty much 
just not going to happen. There's so many neurodivergent people. You're going to encounter them. But, but, but Jen, is it possible? So now we're going to, we're rounding back to uh, what we talked about earlier. Um, I could make the contention that everybody is neurodiverse. I mean, left-handed people make up 10% of the population, at least. So that's one, one in 10, just left-handed people. I beg you to write a book about left-handed people in your series, please. Book number six. And, and there's people who um, are neurodiverse, they have synesthesia. There's people um, who um, have all kinds of other uh, um, um, colorblind. And there's people who have um, differences in their audible range and, 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 um, and, and sensory touching. And, and everybody has a different sense of smell. So I look at your books and I say, well, they're for everybody who's who's different. Mm -hmm. Aren't we all different? Yeah, I think, I mean, you can make the argument that everyone is different. I think that there are, though, some that are feeling different in a bigger way. So like, in other words, like uh, being autistic is very different than being left-handed, especially in terms of the stigma, because if you think about it, um, a lot of people are still uncomfortable talking about autism as a positive thing. Like you would be surprised. I mean, I'm not saying everything about being autistic is positive. It certainly is not. There's a lot of challenges, but there are a lot of people that the minute you tell them that you're autistic, it's like, they almost want to say something like, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, kind of like, it must be hard. And I kind of look at it as, well, yeah, there's a lot of challenges with it. And some of them are quite extensive. Like I have had autistic meltdowns and I still have them sometimes as an adult. And that is no joke when you have sensory overload. I mean, it can be really. So when I think about the one in five or more, because there's probably a lot more than one in five there, statistically, they're saying now that dyslexia is one in five. So that means it's a lot more than one in five. But let's go with at least one in five kids that are neurodivergent and probably a lot more. There is going to be differences in terms of how much of an effect it has on a kid's life. Like if you have, um, if you have, let's say a severe form of autism, that's very different than someone like me who has, um, I would say most of the time I have low support needs, you know, as an autistic person, I wouldn't say I have none, but I, I definitely do need to have some accommodations at times. Whereas there's some other people who have um, accommodations all the time, you know, that they don't live independently as adults and they're autistic. And so th those kinds of things are very different. So we could say that everyone may have some differences, but I do think that there's also um, a whole spectrum, like thinking about the autism spectrum. Um, and I don't think everybody's on the autism spectrum either. I just think that there's, there are a lot more people than we probably originally thought there were because now the research is more I think looking especially more at women and children uh, women and girls who've been overlooked for a diagnosis and so statistically the the rate now I think it's one in 39 I want to say or somewhere around there one in 39 it's it's pretty um you know the the rate has changed quite a bit over the years too they're, they're discovering a lot more um a lot more people are being diagnosed with autism. Uh, Jen, why do you write fiction? I write fiction, especially what's interesting is I started out writing more nonfiction for adults, like essays about my experience. 
And, and I really enjoyed, and I still do write some essays. I do like writing stories that are based on, you know, things that have happened and, um, you know, sort of essays that especially reach like a more mainstream audience. Like that's sort of what I'm doing now. That's not what I was doing when I started out. It was literary criticism and lots of, um, academic, um, things about liter literary works and, very much like the readership was just a handful of academics. Whereas now my goal is to reach as many people as possible and to be an advocate for, you know, autistic people and neurodivergent people. But the reason I enjoy writing fiction now, you know, especially for kids is that I really love taking all the things that, um, I think it works better for me. If I, I take a, a kernel of an idea, like a real life experience and just sort of bring into it a lot of other things too. make it fictional, but, you know, partly for entertainment purposes too, because like, it's fun to have kids competing in a uh, brick building competition, or it's really fun. Like in the second book where they're using augmented reality and digging for dinosaur bones and things like that. Um, that's really fun things to do. And I did actually, while I was researching the book, go to a play, a dig, a dinosaur dig site to try to learn that experience, but it's not like that's one of my normal ac everyday activities that I was drawing from in that book. I did some research where I had some of those experiences and I grew up um, going to the local natural history museum, the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh, where I grew up. I had a lot of experiences, but I didn't take my direct experiences there when I wrote the book to make it a book that had you know, sort of a rising action of beginning, a middle and end, a character arc. I mean, I had to take all those experiences and weave them into something different to create the, you know, the action story, the action packed story that I did. It would, if it were just me going to the museum as a kid and there wasn't this like club that's meeting up and doing all these fun things together, it wouldn't be a story or at least not that kind of story, if that makes sense. So the only Should things I've it. written that are like nonfiction have been, there was already something pretty significant. Like my daughter and I got diagnosed with autism on the same day. People want to hear that story. Right. But like, if I just said, well, when I grew up, I went to the museum and I really enjoyed looking at the dinosaurs. Like that's not going to make a story, but I can take that idea, that experience and my love for, learning about dinosaurs and weave it in with, I mean, I have all kinds of history about the, um, the, the bone wars, which, it, you know, I don't want to get into all that, but there's a lot of nonfiction in my second book in the series because the dinosaur scientific names are in there. All the things that paleontologists know about dinosaurs at this moment, like they're all woven into that fictional story. So it's really, um, in a lot of ways, it's, it's an informational fiction book. I think that part of the reason that I like your your dinosaur book is that I also have a manuscript uh, on the Bone Wars. So um, okay. maybe maybe after we say goodnight to everybody, you and I will come back in and just have a short tete a tete about dinosaur bones. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so uh, what, two more things that really uh, I, I want. Um, are you also writing a? a like you write fiction, but the fiction is children. And uh, I'm really intrigued by whether you also write about animals. Do you have stories 
with anthropomorphic animals. I haven't actually written any with you. You mean like the point of view of an animal for a story? I haven't. Yeah, like, yeah. like the, 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 the giraffe whose neck wasn't as long as his buddies and so on. Yeah, I haven't. I actually haven't written any. Um, it's not that I it just most of the ideas that I've had for stories have been um, specifically, you know, I, I often I, I would say I only write from a neurodivergent perspective because I honestly think it would be hard to write a story if the character, the main character wasn't neurodivergent because I would have no idea how to get into that head. It's like Jen, I can get into the neurodivergent head. Gira giraffes, can, <laughs> giraffes can be neurodivergent. Right. Yeah, you're right. In fact, um, I will just um, mention um, Kat Windis wrote a book called Bitsy Bat School Star. That's fantastic. And um, that is an autistic bat. So <laughs> check it out if you haven't read it. I shall. Um, and the the, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, we, we got so much into uh, autism and neurodiversity. You didn't tell our audience uh, how you found an agent, how you got published. It, it's such a rare event. How did you make that happen? Yeah. So what's interesting is I mentioned earlier how I was writing a lot of nonfiction pieces like essays, New York Times, Washington Post. It was actually that journalism that led to Too Sticky because I ended up being introduced to the publisher. Albert Whitman was specifically looking for um, someone who could write a book with a with an autistic girl as the main character. So once I had that introduction, I actually went through a couple of drafts of a potential book for, you know, I came up with the idea to have too sticky, you know, to have the slime experiment, all of that was my idea, but the concept, so the concept of what would happen in the book is what I came up with, but they specifically wanted an autistic girl as the main character and was, were familiar with my journalism that I, I was writing a lot about um, women and girls and, you know, the research that, that had been, that, that, that they were kind of doing at the time um, to, identify and not overlook as many autistic girls that that was a lot of the stuff that I was writing about for these different magazines and newspapers so when they asked me I wrote the manuscript I knew nothing at all about writing for kids when I tried to write my first book for kids so it was a mentorship between me and the editor um, Andrea Hall who I mentioned earlier so she very much taught me how to write a children's book and then um, once I got an offer and a lot of other authors might not, or, you know, aspiring authors might not know this, but if you get an offer, you can say, um, thank you for the offer. And I'm going to think about it. And then you can actually query agents. And that's exactly what I did. I queried agents saying I had a book offer. And then I actually had two offers on the same day from agents. I only queried 12. Um, and then a third that was potentially interested after I already signed with one of the first two. So it, it resulted in a lot of interest. Um, and so once I had an agent, she negotiated the deal for Too Sticky. And yeah, then it, you know, it took off from there. Um, the concept for the chapter book series, my editor, Andrea Hall, had moved in the meantime from Albert Whitman to Beaming Books. And that's why I also moved with her. And um, that's where the series, The Infinity Rainbow Club is. Incredible. So um, before we, uh, before we uh, sum it up, um, can you show us a, just like a spread or two from the Sticky Fingers book, which I love? The Two Sticky book? Okay. Yeah. So one of my favorites. I, I call it, it Sticky Fingers because if I were to write a book <laughs> about my Sticky Fingers, that would... 
So the uh, the um, illustrator is Joanne Lufreitoff. Um, again, always important to acknowledge the illustrator does so Absolutely. much work, especially in a picture book. These are Absolutely. fantastic illustrations. Um, but I think she just did a great job with these, showing um, my character Holly's anxiety with um, seeing. It's like she's she's anticipating a slime experiment at school that day, and it's just like she's seeing Jen, Jen, slime can, everywhere. Can you read for us, please? Sure. Okay. Throughout the, throughout the day, Holly thought she saw slime everywhere. She peeked at her green stress ball under her desk to make sure she wasn't squeezing slime. At lunch, the green jello looked like slime. At recess, the monkey bars looked like they were coated with slime too. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I so associate with, with this book. Yeah, and there's, um, so they, they do the experiment, of course, where they're doing, you know, creating the slime. And one of the things that I also wanted to make sure that kids knew is that, you know, what is the science of slime? So I actually tried to say it in kid language, and it was really hard to come up a way to describe the science. Like when you squeeze slime, it's more like a solid, but then when you let it run through your hands, it's more like a liquid. So kind of like thinking about chemistry um, early on, because this book is geared for like four to eight year old kids. So how can you explain the science of slime? And let's see, I'll show one more. Here's um, in the classroom. So after you can see there's a diverse classroom there, all the kids are working on their slime experiment. The teacher is very supportive in the book, the parents as well, and her, her older sister here at the end. Um, don't want to give away the ending, but, uh, but it's, um, yeah, it was, it was a story that's kind of framed at the beginning and the end with the family. So like the main character of Holly's family, and then in the middle, you see the school setting. So, um, you have now a series, um, of five, um, I'll call them middle grade chapter books. Is that, is that okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and um, what what are you going to do? Are, are you going to continue with chapter books, middle grade? Are you going to go back to uh, picture books? What what is uh, what I'm is doing your a little, direction? A little bit of everything. So I've you know I've written um, I've worked on some other picture books, and I have um, you know I hope to write more Infinity Rainbow Club books, of course. Um, and left-handed, also... left-handed. <laughs> I'm working on a middle grade horror book as well right now. That's in the drafting stages, so very early on. But um, yeah, so that's there's just a lot that I want to do. And um, like I said, the main sort of theme for me is that, or the main common, the common thing between my books is that the characters are neurodivergent, the main characters. Beyond that, though, I'm interested in genre fiction. I like nonfiction fiction. I'm, I'm just... Um, very interested in like as an autistic person if you talk to uh, other autistic people they most likely have special interests and one of my special interests as you might guess is actually autism and neurodiversity and I have other ones like travel is one of them I like to do you know adventure sports and things like I, I like to explore but that's one of my main ones. Reading is another special interest. Like there isn't a day that goes by that I'm not reading something. I have books at my bedside. I've got eBooks, audiobooks. I read a lot. I mean, as a PhD in English, you might expect that anyway, but it's, it's really those special interests and writing is one of them too. Just writing, reading, traveling. And so that, you know, there's, um, 
there's just a lot of things that I enjoy doing. Those are the things I enjoy doing the most. So I do them a lot. Anything I haven't asked you? Yeah, I think, I mean, we covered a lot. We talked about, you know, everything from uh, the di diagnosis to, you know, living as an autistic person and the books. Yeah, I think we covered it. So Dr. Jen Malia, mm -hmm. it's been wonderful having you on the show. Everybody run out and buy her books. They're wonderful. Um, and they really address a, a, a need in, um, in our society of accepting, uh, accepting other uh, children, other people. Um, it's been wonderful having you. And um, we are going to say goodbye to everybody. And then I'm going to ask you to come back. And we'll talk about the Bone Wars for a moment. Just you and me. Uh, so goodbye to everybody. Great thanks to Dr. Jen Malia. And congratulations on your new books, The Infinity Rainbow Club. First two in the series coming out one month apart. And um, I'm Mel Rosenberg, the host of the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. So Jen, go out, come back in. Goodbye, everybody, and take care. <laughs>